This episode is sponsored by Launch Tabletop. Are you thinking of making prototypes, demo copies, or short print runs of your game? Well, Launch Tabletop can help. Their print-on-demand service, Launch Lab, helps you make retail-quality board games at all scales, even just one single copy. Go to launchtabletop.com to find out more, and if you use promo code BGDL20, you'll receive 20% off your first order. So if you want to launch your next game project to the stratosphere with retail quality and no minimums, check out Launch Tabletop today. What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about print and play. We're talking about the rise of print and play games, how they've just really exploded over the last few years and become a very viable aspect of the gaming market. And I'm talking to Jason Greeno, who is a designer, he's a publisher, and he also runs pnparcade.com, which, as the name would suggest, it focuses on print and play games. Jason is a guy that I've been wanting to have on the show for a while. So excited to finally have him here. And we dive into just all the different aspects of bringing a print and play style game to life. We talk about best practices. We talk about file formats, file names, file sizes, like all the different things on the technical side. But we also talk about the design side of things and what it looks like to create a game that is easy to print off and cut out or do whatever you need to to it and preferably as little as possible. And we'll talk about the ease of getting the game to the table and how important that is in, in the episode. But we just dive into the productability, the marketability, the designability, all the different aspects of a print and play game. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Scyther Gaming and their new game, The Headless Horseman, coming soon to crowdfunding. As the horseman rides in search of his missing head, Lost in the Woods villagers work to complete a jack-o'-lantern first in order to save themselves and win the game. Or, playing as the horseman himself, he attempts to recover his own jack-o'-lantern first, all at the peril of anyone in his way. Using a unique image building process to draft, swap, and reveal cards, all players attempt to be the first to fully complete their pumpkin using discards and tactical placement strategies to win. You can learn more at theheadlesshorsemangame.com. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Jason Greeno. So Jason, print and play games seem to have just blown up. If you were in recent uh, history, I know the pandemic was obviously part of that and we can kind of get into that in a minute. But other than the pandemic, why do you think print and play games have grown so much in popularity? I mean, we're seeing Kickstarter campaigns making tens of thousands of dollars, not millions yet. Like we're not in crazy land, but you know, but at the same time, they're only selling it for like a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a pop, you know? So like that's still a ton of backers to hit thirty, forty thousand $40,000. But why do you think print and play is just getting more popular seemingly by the month right now? Well, I think at least one thing makes sense to me is the cost of games right now, right? You can look at Kickstarter and see 100, 200, 300, $500 Kickstarters. And I think there's a little bit of fatigue to that. Um, I know for myself, I'm just not getting through enough games to justify those kind of expenses. And the idea of being able to turn and buy, you know, a full game, $3, maybe $5 and play that with my family instantly after printing it out and cutting it up, that's really appealing to me. Um, so I think part of it's cost. I think that there's an entire community of folks who are crafty and like to get their hands right down making the game and actually making it in, you know, as even better than retail, if I can. Pimping out the game is one of their favorite things to do. And uh, there's a great you know, uh, Facebook community that Martin's got uh, running, Martin Gonzalez. And I think that's another part of it. People like to... Uh, make things and and that's appealing. Um, and when I grew up, there wasn't a lot of game stores uh, in our town. We had to drive about an hour to a game store. I think that that's starting to get better as games have become more popular. But the idea that pretty much anywhere in the world that has internet can print these games out and 
and have them same day, I think is a huge draw. Yeah, that's a really good point. There are so many countries around the world that it is so expensive to ship to. And so even if you do run a crowdfunding campaign and people, you know, in the Philippines or in the heart of Africa or South America, like they, it's like a hundred bucks to ship a $30 game to them. And so well, that doesn't necessarily make sense financially. And it's also a huge hassle. I can't tell you how many packages that my company has has seen get lost shipping oh, yeah. into certain parts of the world to the point where I just don't even ship there anymore. It, it was such a hassle. It was such a just frustrating email back and forth between me and the fulfillment company and the local post office and the backer. It's like, okay, this is just, it's not worth everything goes into it. And so I don't even ship there anymore, but I do send emails, right? So all of a sudden these, these people had access to games. Uh, and uh, the arts and crafts thing is an interesting one too. You talk about people pimping out the game and making it better. I, I've seen people post, especially in Martin's group, where they talk about hey, like, hey, here's the the version of this game I made. I, I took the print and play files and here's what I made. And they show it on the table and you're like, wow, that does look way better than the actual published copy. And they don't mind spending $50 to do it, even though it's a $20 game. Like they could have gone and found it on, you know, Amazon for 20 bucks, but like, no, I'm going to do it myself. And so there's a certain arts and crafts DIY nature to it. I've also seen people do that kind of thing with their children. So it's like this interesting bonding kind of moment and they might not even play the game. You know, just put it on the shelf. We'll get to it one day. But it was the experience of putting the game together, which to them is just as, you know, just as enjoyable as the actual game itself. And so you see a lot of intersections of these kind of interesting things going on. Uh, I am curious, though, back to the, the pandemic, which, you know, unfortunately, the pandemic. But for a guy like you, who's been running a company called PNPArcade.com for several years now, you were kind of right there primed and ready to say, oh, oh, hey, if you want to print and play game, uh, I've got a few for sale if you want them. And, you know, my company works with you. I send you all the PDFs of my games that you put on your marketplace for people to buy. Tell me what you saw numbers-wise on the back end during that 2020-2021 stint. Did you notice a huge jump in sales or is that just something I'm kind of assuming? No, you're not wrong. We saw huge spikes uh, during the main part of the pandemic. Um, folks were obviously spending more time at home and looking for things to do with their families, with their kids. And I, I think we we saw a lot of folks saying, you know, I'm so glad that PNP Arcade is there. And whether they were a customer that were looking for something to do with their family or a publisher who was looking for a little extra revenue stream, um, we definitely saw more submissions to our site as games that uh, publishers wanted to have us add. And we also saw a ton more sales uh, from folks that were looking for something to do in a time when a lot of us were stuck at home. And Okay. So it does make sense. And it was, you know, born out in reality. Tell me, let's get into like some best practices, right? Let's say someone's listening to this. They want to put together a print and play version of their game, or maybe they already have one, but they're trying to make it better. What in your mind are the things they really need to be aware of? Maybe the things that they don't know they don't know. You know, I saw a post the other day and it was talking about don't just like make it grayscale. Like there's a difference between low ink and grayscale as far as like creating your files and, and to be aware of the difference and what that really means for a printer and things like that. But give me some best practices on the game side. And in a minute, we can get in the best practices maybe on the business side. Yeah, sure. So if if we're talking files and preparation, then you, you do want to, if you can, work with a graphic designer because they're familiar with those differences between grayscale and black and white. And they can make recommendations for you of, you know, maybe this image isn't going to be the best one. We might need to uh, take it into Photoshop and tweak it a little bit. You might, might be able to just convert to gray. Um, I'm certainly uh, facing that with my game. I got to... Uh, I want to recommend that you you make it as easy for the consumer as possible and as desirable when it comes out of their printer, right? So that uh, translates into as few pages as possible. So multiple cards up on a page, those cards have crop marks all the way around, not just on a couple corners and you know let them figure it out from there. Um, we've got some great folks on that Facebook community that I mentioned that are always willing to, um, you know, you can hire them to help make you a uh, print and play file. And, and sometimes I'll do that myself. I'm a graphic designer, but you know, time is of the essence. So if I can do double my efforts by hiring someone who's, you know, really good at that, I'd recommend doing that, you know, spend the money. It's worth it. Um, other things we mentioned color, we mentioned the number of pages. Uh, another key point, Gabe is file size. I'd say about, 
20% of the time we'll get files submitted to us that are in the 50 megabytes and higher. And that makes it really difficult for a consumer to download to their computer via PNP Arcade's uh, website. The Shopify is great. It's our backend system, but sometimes it'll choke. And I'll get an email that says, hey, I never got my file. Well, it, it was struggling through your internet connection to get you the full file. And if it doesn't, then it cuts out. So uh, use Acrobat's PDFs to the best of your ability to compress the files. They'll print fine, and you should be able to get a you know a very large game in 10 megs or less. It, it should never really have to go to uh, multiple gigabytes, unless you're you know selling every once in a while. We'll we'll have a, a very large game, like say role player. I'm thinking of um, there's a, there's a few other games that are like really full size board games, big box games, and we're happy to have them on our site because we do have that community that's interested in print and play crafting a full game. They can do it. Um, but the better you can compress your files, um, the better results you'll see in sales. Yeah, absolutely. And it is kind of interesting. I've talked to people like I've got Robomon coming out sometime next year. And if I were to turn that into a print and play, it'd be hundreds of pages of PDF. And so I've had people reach out to me like, hey, is this going to be print and play? And I'm like, well, well, no, like that just seems ridiculous to me. And they'll say, no, no, that's fine. 300 pages. Oh, that's fine. I'll do that. Like they've they've printed out, I want to say like Scythe and some of these other like really big Euro games. And again, it's like, wouldn't it be cheaper just to buy it? It's like, yeah, but I don't I don't do it that for that. No, I do it for the fun. It's like, OK, so there are groups of people that will, will buy these massive games. One thing I want to add on the onto the, like the file size is also the file name. This is something I ran into where I think it was a game I have called the, let's see, Realm of Shadows, The Last Stronghold, and then it's from Best With One Games, and it was like version you know 2.7 or something like that. And so for the file name, like we weren't thinking about it, the graphic designer sent me the file, and it was ROS TLS uh, BW1 2.7. And it was just like, oh, everything was shortened into acronyms which made perfect sense to me. But then when people downloaded it, they couldn't find it on their computer because they were typing in, you know, the name of the game, name of the company, like, where is this file? And so they were sending me emails like, I don't know where this thing is. And um, so it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I need to name it the actual name of the game, be very specific and very easy to find on people's hard drives. Megan, that's just a little thing that people don't think about. So one thing I saw was like backgrounds. You know, if your background is light blue or something, right? So your cards have a, a certain gradient or something like that tone to your background. Well, grayscale uses up a ton of ink because it's just going to make that light blue gray versus just turning that light blue white. And now your printer's not going to print that. So I think that's definitely something to be aware of is kind of going through. And I've got that issue uh, with a rule book that the graphic designer put this nice background, this very light shade of, I think it is blue or green, into the background of all the pages and so when that gets printed, that uses up a ton of ink. It's like, oh, okay, we just need to go in, remove that little background file. And now it makes it easier, cheaper, you know, simpler for people to print. Just things to think about. But to your point earlier, go to some people who are print players and ask their opinion first before you put it out into the world or onto the market. Like, hey, here's this. Can y'all give me some feedback? Because they will. It's an amazing, amazing community. All right. So file types. Let's Let's talk about... Still from like designing standpoint, how do I make one of these games that appeals to people? One thing you mentioned, well, let's go in a little deeper, is page count. Have you seen like a certain threshold? Is it like three pages or less are really the best or 10 pages? Like, is there a certain number range in there? You're like, ah, this is kind of best practice. Yeah, there's a couple breakpoints, right? So this won't come as any surprise given the success of things like voyages and dungeon pages, but one sheet of paper that doesn't have to be cut that maybe you supply just a few components that are pretty commonplace, three to six dice and a pencil, that's you're going to be head and shoulders above most popular product, right? And then the next threshold is probably somewhere between three to seven, eight pages because it's a few cards. It's maybe a, a few sheets along that lines of, no, I don't have to cut anything, but I do need uh, multiple pages out on the table. And then the threshold after that just really starts to drop in hate to say popularity because there is there's popular crowds that are interested in it but the threshold numbers go way down after that right so um plenty of folks looking for small things in a couple pages and and the most are the ones that are looking for single pages we had um, a series of um, holiday themed roll and writes that came out like sort of in a um 
uh, what do you call it? Like 12 days of Christmas kind of release. And instead of like popping open the window, you know, on your, your, your Christmas, um, sorry, I can't think of the name of that thing. Is it advent calendar? Yes. An advent calendar. Yeah. We, we had an advent calendar roll and write. We released a few years ago and it was just one sheet of paper and people loved it. They bought the whole kit at once and we released it slowly over the, the month of December. So that's, that's what I would recommend. If you've never designed for print and play, it's sort of like you've never designed a game design small. If you've never designed print and play design small, uh, do a, do a single page. It doesn't have to be uh, roll and write. There's plenty of games out there on board game geek that are just using a single piece of paper. Um, that's, that'd be my recommendation. Yeah. I think you mentioned postmark games. I think they're kind of setting the gold standard right now. And I think they have also opened up a lot of people's eyes to the viability of a company that does this. Cause that's, that's all they do. They focus on this. Um, one of the campaigns they did, like you're saying voyages, I mean, it made over $30,000. And I think a lot of people saw that and were like, Oh, I can make tens of thousands of dollars with a margin of like 99%, like a stupid margin, especially in the board game space, where I can just send out an email to all these backers, these customers, and then I'm done. Oh, and then I can like email them updates. I can email them new maps. I can email them new versions and new ways to play and stuff like that. And I'm not having to print it somewhere. I'm not having to wait on the printing to be done. I'm not having to wait on the, you know, do all of the logistics of shipping and getting it around the world and to a fulfillment center. And now we're waiting on this and, oh, this was a mistake. And, oh, that box got crushed. Like there's so many things you just avoid by sending, you know, these, these one page games 100%. out to people. hundred percent agree. I've done just a very little bit of Kickstarter uh, fulfillment in the physical retail realm with Wonderspell. We released Harsh Shadows and we just released Welcome to Reckoning. And it gives me like stress when I get an email from somebody who's unhappy. Like we didn't necessarily do anything terribly wrong. It was just like the box got crushed, but I hate to have a customer who's not happy, a player who can't play their game. So like the idea that I can control more of that through print and play is so appealing to me. Um, yeah. So that, that's why you'll find me a lot more in the print and play area most of the time. Yeah. And I just love the fact that that's becoming much more viable and people are realizing it's much more viable and great graphic design, beautiful art, you know, giving people different ways to print it. You're not doing the low ink, doing the uh, super simplified, you know, take out some of the graphics if you need to, just to make it as simple as possible. But, you know, Postmark, let's talk about them just for a minute. Because, all right, one page, easy. All you need, I think, is a pencil and some dice, right? So, you know, everybody's got that lying around. What else, though? What else do you think it is? Because there's plenty of that kind of stuff out there that hasn't made a ton of money, right? So what is it? What are some, maybe some of the other things you think that they're doing really, really well that we can learn from that really brings in customers? So their gameplay is not trying to be overly complex, right? So it's it's very straightforward um, and just builds off of those interesting choices or interesting handful of choices and just repeat that turn after turn. But because you're moving through the map, it makes those choices interesting. Uh, they did that with Voyages. They've done that with Waypoints and Aquamarine, I think is the, the underwater one. And, you know, they're keeping it simple. And I think that the graphic design should not be um, overlooked. That's super clean and appealing to look at. It's not trying to throw too much at you. And Personally, that's the type of game I like to play is one that I can sit down and learn quickly and get right into it or teach it really quickly, right? They've done something else really good over at Postmark. They've made some of their games multiplayer and I think in a desirable way, like it's that's that's hard to do with just an eight and a half, eleven 11 piece of paper and say, get multiple people around the table. And, and I think they've done that well. Yeah, I think another thing is it's very, I'm trying to think of the right, I'm going to make up a word. It's content creatable. It's easy for a content creator to sit down and then like do a playthrough and then put that up on YouTube or Instagram or Twitch or whatever. And now that's, that's marketing dollars. They didn't even have to spend that people are discovering because it's so easy, right? It's so simple. Jamie Stegmaier is doing this with his roll and write, you know, game. He'll just sit down and just play through it. Like how many people have discovered a video of, of one of these games and they're like, Oh, that's interesting. And then they go and it's a dollar or three or five and they go and they buy it and they print it off and they play it themselves. And it's money that these companies didn't even really have to spend on ad advertising or anything else. I think that's another thing to, to think about. And to your point, it looks good on the table. It looks good in a thumbnail. It looks good in the video or on the you know post. And then it draws people in and then they watch or they kind of check it out and then they want to go 
buy it. So just something to to think about. I think another thing, and I want to talk about your your game, got Dungeon Pages, which I think is another interesting kind of way to do this as far as you're talking about voyages. They've got different ways to play, different modes. There's different difficulties. There's a lot of things that make a player go, ooh, that's interesting. I want to try that. And I think you're doing that with Dungeon Pages and giving players this kind of surprise. Like, oh, there's a new character. Oh, there's a new map. Oh, there's a new boss. Like, it's that really interesting dopamine hit that they get, right? Because they're like discovering something new. So talk about Dungeon Pages, kind of what it is, how to play, and then kind of maybe your mindset behind some of the choices that you're making, not just from a design standpoint, but also kind of on the business marketing side. Yeah, sure. So Dungeon Pages is from PNP Arcade Publishing. It's our first game. And when I say our, I mean, uh, Jason Tagmar and I have decided that we are going to put a lot of focus into these print and play games. First out of the gates, Dungeon Pages was a publishing focus of one sheet of paper, but something variable about it, something interesting that um, not only can we have fun designing on our side, because we certainly do, we're releasing one of these weekly in 2023. Um, but the players can find some variable replayability fun in it too. And what that means is the top third of our dungeon crawl sheet of paper is the character and their information. And the bottom two thirds is an, a quest sheet or a set of dungeons. And that can be cut off at that, at that point. So you can swap the character with a different quest sheet. So like I said, one per week, 52 sheets, 52 different character variations. Um, Sometimes it's the same character, but it's sort of like they're in a different uh, class of warrior or different weapon set. But we've also released, I think, maybe 16 characters over the year. Um, and we still have a few more to go um, up till the end of the year. So, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. And I think we really uh, hit our stride with that product because uh, each week, uh, Jason and I have met in the morning for a couple hours and dreamt up, okay, what boss do we want to uh, dream up? What uh new relic that we want to design. It's really fun as a game designer to be able to have an existing framework to work within. You know, you don't have to change everything like you're starting a whole new game design, but now you get to go play within the sandbox and be like, okay, I'm going to make a new monster this week, or I'm going to like create a little puzzle game instead of a boss monster. And now as the characters are, you know, puzzling through the last dungeon, they have to figure out how to escape instead of like how to just beat the dragon one more time. So yeah, we've had a lot of fun exploring that. And I, I think it's safe to say that our uh, customer fan base have enjoyed each week. We've we've been able to surprise them with something new. Yeah, and I love this from a business side, but also a design side, because you're not having to create a brand new game. You're just saying, okay, here's what we, we have. Here's the systems we've created. How do we create interesting new choices or new ways to do it? And it just it just makes things easier from a design standpoint. And also, you're not having to playtest everything else over again. You're just having to playtest this one little change or one little modification. And that just makes the process faster. I also love from a business standpoint, you don't ever sell out. It's not like somebody finds this game late and they're like, oh, well, there's not any, you know, not any copies available or I could go on eBay and it's like three times the price. Like, you don't have to deal with that. It's just, do you have an email address? I can send it to you today. And that just makes it so nice. But then also, you can just update the file. Let's say you have a typo. Let's say you have some numbers that got switched. Or let's say you did a little more playtesting after, you know, the game came out. And you're like, oh, we really need to change something. You just update the PDF and you send out a new email. You're basically patching the game like you would a video game. Tell me about that. Have you run into any instances where you're like, oh man, thank goodness this is a PDF. And it just, because otherwise you would have printed 3000 copies and they'd be sitting on a boat somewhere. You're like, oh, nothing we can do about it, guys. Sorry. Yeah, you, you nailed it. Uh, right on the head there, because after our Black Friday promotion, we released on January 1st. We had the game ready to go on January 1st. And sure, there were some things that were typos or some rules clarifications that we needed. And what I'm really proud of is by the end of January, probably halfway through January, actually, we no longer sent a single update afterwards. Like every Friday, we release a new sheet and have, knock on wood, have not had to make updates after the fact. What has been uh, a positive uh, benefit of the print and play aspect is halfway through the year at the 26 week mark, we release an addendum to the rules, which in video game terms would be like uh, an expansion. So now there were new uh, tile types. There were new uh, items that the heroes could pick up in the dungeon. There were uh, a new monster type that didn't exist before because in the fiction of the game, the world had been sort of broken by um this stuff crashing into the planet and causing lava to burst everywhere. So now there's lava everywhere all over the maps that didn't exist before. So again, we're like creating the product 
and we're following what the players are interested in. We have this inside joke with the players and the play testers about how difficult one of the characters, her maps always seem to be. Mira, the ranger, always seems to end up on the toughest map. So now it's a thing. Like we, we just say like, let's make it a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And, and people enjoy that. And, and for the folks that are just sort of new to the experience who don't want the most difficult, we can also use our Discord channel to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with them and respond immediately and be like, you should try you know, the core set. Or, And um, I give credit to uh, Jason Tagmeyer for this. He came up with the idea that um, sub-channels would be each quest sheet. So folks can jump in there and post a photo of their quest sheet and say, I almost made it, but I died, or you know, I finally beat this level. And they can all talk with each other. So um, sure, that could happen with a retail product, but there's something more instantaneous, I think, about print and play that encourages the instantaneous conversation. Yeah, it's that delay, right? If I, like I could do this with a printed product, but it's gonna take six months for anybody to see it versus what you're able to do. You could literally see something in Discord and send out an email that day that addresses the change, addresses the issue, fixes the typo, clarifies the rules. Like it is instantaneous. And I love, it's kind of similar. It reminds me of the old trading card game, Legend of the Five Rings. You familiar with LFIR? Oh yeah. Okay. So this blew my mind. I didn't, I wasn't really in the games at this point. This was years ago when they were doing L5R and they would have these big tournaments and then they would figure out who, who won and what happened. And like, cause you had all these different, not tribes, factions, different factions that were part of the game. And they would kind of tally up all the stats and data and who won and how many of this faction and versus how many of that one. And then the next release would have that, have the, the, basically the stats integrated into the story, right? So if you had this certain faction that did really, really well, when well the next version, maybe they're in charge, like, and they've got all these cards coming out in the system of them being the emperor or whatever, or maybe they take a, a, a character out of one faction and they become a, a saboteur or you know a traitor or something like that. And now they're showing up in a different faction. And so the fans were able to kind of weave the story, yeah. yeah, influence the story themselves. And it was so cool. And it made people lean in. They're like, what's going to happen with the next release? Here's what happened. Here's what, you know, what I saw, here's what I experienced at this tournament. How is that going to impact literally the next cards that are coming out in the next set? And so, you're doing that and you can do it instantaneously, basically, where we're not having to wait on printing and shipping and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's another really cool thing is that bond you can create with customers because it's there's no lag. There's no delay. It's like, oh, you know, Bob in the Discord said this. And then in the very next week, you know, we've got Bob's idea coming out and we don't have to tell him about it. We can just let him discover it and let him feel that little like, oh, man, they, they listen to me. And <laughs> I think that's such a cool, cool thing. Do you have any other like little anecdotes or little stories about just the. Yeah, basically the benefits of doing it this way. So I, it harkens back to what you said earlier about content creators. You reminded me that we have a uh, a YouTube uh, content creator. I think he goes by the hashtag Walkasm. He on his own. We didn't reach out to him. He just uh, picked up Dungeon Pages and he was going to do it weekly. But I, I think he found it a little bit daunting. He's I think he's got ten releases so far of him playing through a Dungeon Pages. And it was so cool, Gabe, like you're a game designer, you get this, like he had made his own graphic and found his own illustrations of the characters who we didn't necessarily illustrate in the game. So like I, I was showing it to Jason Tagmar. I was like, look at this. It's like, it's got its own um, vampire queen here. And he was just elaborating on top of what we had already built and having a blast doing it and talking to his, his crowd and, and whatnot. And it was just so cool. Um, anytime you design a game, it's fun when people are talking about it, but he was taking it to the next level. Yeah, that's so awesome, dude. How much is Dungeon Pages? Uh, so we've got different ways to get in. You can get the core set for, I think we're selling it for $4. You can get the year long for 20. We were selling that at Kickstarter for 10. And that if you buy the $20, you get everything that's come so far. So we're up to like week 38. And then you will immediately get the update every Friday for the rest of the year. Gotcha. And so that's nothing I was thinking about. It's like, okay, how much is it? But when somebody buys it, like for your game, like let's say they, they buy it next year. Well, they're going to get 52 pages, right? Like that's a pretty good deal, it seems like, because that's kind of 52 plays. Like if, if you only want to play it one time, well, you could do that 52 times. Like how many games can you buy for 20 bucks that you feel like, oh, I can play this 52 times? Like it's just not that many, especially in today's world. Uh, it just is what it is. A lot of cult of the new and things like that. Right. So and, multiply, and multiply it by the number of times you can take the character section off the top and reattach it to all those others. 
So like, exactly. I don't know what the number is. It's a lot, but it is a whole lot. Right. And so I think it's another thing you can provide so much perceived value with these games because they are just files and you can keep the price relatively low. Now you still have to pay artists and graphic designers. There's still, you know, an email, like there are certain costs on the back end with different things, running the website. That's, you know, making some money for yourself to pay your own power bill and food bill and stuff like that. So you can't just be like, Oh, everything's 25 cents. Like you have still have to charge something, but you can keep it way lower than if you're printing. Like I, I do a lot of small box games. They're 20 bucks. $20, $25, that's kind of the range that I'm aiming for. But that, it's not $4. It's not $20, you know, for 52 experiences. Like, it's just, the money gets really interesting as far as that kind of thing goes. Now, one thing I'm curious about, if you wanted to, you could, you know, put these games out into the world and then put them up on like a a print-on-demand service like the Game Crafter. But you're, you're choosing not to do that. And so I'm curious, why not, you know, is that something you would suggest other people do it? You're just choosing not to for whatever reason. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so for something like the Curse Menagerie, my game, where I'm just sort of doing that on my own, I am a one-man shop. And while I'm hiring out for an illustrator, I'm pretty much doing everything else. I'm doing the graphic design. I'm doing the the marketing, although my brother's helping out with that, and getting the Kickstarter all ready. And like I said earlier, I get you know stressed about people being unhappy with a, a printed product shipped out. And I if I can't control that, I don't really want to if I don't have to. And like we've been talking about for a while now, like the idea of being able to quickly release an expansion or quickly release a cool little added feature. The Curse Menagerie is a detective type game and it's got an investigation sheet and you sort of track your progress. If people really like that, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, does that become like an investigation diary? And like, you know, do I add pages as new ghosts get released? So like, I want that ability to release the new content. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that or as quickly as I want to in the physical world. Um, would we ever do something physical for dungeon pages? We've talked about a book. We've talked about some different options there. Um, it just depends, you know, which role of me you're talking to. Like, is it me at PNP Arcade Publishing? Usually no. Um, but every once in a while, maybe if it's me as games designed by Jason Greeno, like the Curse Menagerie is now, I think I'm going to stay electronic. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense in, in certain ways, because like something I've talked about on the podcast before our brains are supercomputers, but we only have one megabyte of RAM. Like we can only focus on a very small number of things, kind of like one at a time. Like we just can't spread our focus that much, even compared to the ability <laughs> of our overall brain power. And so it's okay to step back and go, I'm not going to use the Game Crafter for this. Or I've seen so many you know people breaking in and wanting to get in crowdfunding and publishing, and they're, they're trying to do Twitter and they're trying to do YouTube and they're trying to do Twitch and they're trying to do Facebook and Instagram. It's like, just relax, step back, and focus on one or two of those channels and be really good there. Preferably the one that you use the most already. So you're not having to like completely change your like normal you know, daily life and stuff like that. It's okay to not do everything. And so I think you know, if anyone listening is listening to this and just like really feeling that anxiety, that stress of like, oh, I've got to do all the things, you really don't. It's that 80-20 rule. 80% of your results are going to come from 20% of your effort. And so it's really about figuring out where is that 20% effort? Where where is the the specific place or places that I'm getting the majority of the impacts or results that I'm aiming for? For you, it ain't the game crafter. So it's like, ah, maybe one day, you know, that's kind of like on the possible to-do list down the road. If uh, if I win the lottery, then I can step, you know, take a day off and I can put it on the game crafter. Right. But right now, that's not where it's at. And that's perfectly fine. Nothing I want to dive into is this is something I'm, that was brand new to me that I learned, I don't know, I guess it's probably two years ago at this point. But with Robomon, I wanted to put music, right? I wanted people to like they land on a map, play in the game, and I want to give them that full experience. And so I put QR codes on the maps that they can just scan with their phone and that instantly plays this kind of old school, you know, Nintendo video game music to kind of get, and it, and it fits the map, right? So if they're in a cave, it gets that cave vibe. If they're in a battle, then the music speeds up. If they're in a boss battle, then it, it kind of has a holy, like each boss has its own music. And it, so I'm using QR codes. Well, I learned that there are now dynamic QR codes that even though it's printed, that that that, that dynamic code can be changed. Like the file that it points to can be changed. And so that's a game changer, right? Because now I'm not stuck, even though it is a printed thing. 
I'm not stuck with, you know, oh no, that file was broken or that file was messed up or type it, whatever it is. I can now change where it points to. Are you looking or have you noticed anyone else doing anything that, you know, with QR codes or with anything scannable or with anything that's still print and play, but now we're kind of adding some interesting little hybrid aspects to it? Yeah, I'm going to feel bad for not being able to call the, the game's name to mind, but um, somebody on PMP Arcade submitted a game that uses, if it's not QR codes, it's something along those lines that you use your phone and it's dungeon crawl, right? So I enter a room and I believe the way it works is you don't know everything that's in the room until you do that digital aspect. Like you click the code and it and it pops up for you. I think that's how that one works. Um, but it's far and few between. And I honestly think it's way underused. I think that's a really cool thing that you're doing with Robomon. I love the idea of the music behind it. Um, but I don't think we have too many folks yet on um, PNP Arcade that are taking advantage of that. And, and more people should. Yeah, I think there's so many cool things you can add, even if it is just like what I'm doing. It's completely superfluous. It's completely experiential. Like has nothing to do with the gameplay. But even if you wanted to add gameplay in, because again, what we're talking about is saving components, saving the number of things someone has to print out, saving the number of things that someone has to then cut out or whatever. If you have a, a sheet of QR codes, right, and they're just using their phone, like if you had a detective game, right, and you don't want to print out 50 cards you know, to, to have the different interactions someone can have trying to figure out the mystery. Well, if you just have QR codes and you're scanning on your phone and it's popping up, oh, okay, I talked to Bob and you know Bob said this. I'm going to go over here and talk to Susan. Oh, Susan said this. And you're not having to do all the cards aspects of it. And if you make them dynamic, you can update those things. You know, um, man, you could... I mean, we're sitting here designing a game at this point, but like, <laughs> so Let's many do cool... it, Gabe. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, the options are all over the place. And Again, these are games I want to see exist. And so I'm hoping people are listening to this like, ooh, I have an idea. Please make it happen. Please reach out to Jason and be like, hey, I want to submit this to PMP Arcade. Which, actually, let's talk about that. If someone does want to submit a game to you, to pmparcade.com, what's the process? Is there like a form on your website? What should they do file-wise? Tell me about that. Yeah, there's a form. If you go to our website on the left-hand nav, you'll see submissions as an option. Go to that page. It'll give you a little bit of background on what to expect. Number one thing is that we just get too many submissions for myself or Jason to be able to respond to everyone. Say, you know, your game didn't quite make the cut because, and here's the reasons. Like, you know, there hasn't really graphic design applied to it. It looks like a prototype. It's got something offensive, um, just, you know, common sense type stuff. Is this a game that you would be comfortable putting on a shelf or buying off of a shelf? If yes, it'll probably get accepted. If no, um, you know, you probably know the reason why, if you just be honest and look through it. Um, there is a form that you fill out and it'll ask you for just some basic things like um, your product description, you know, who's behind it, the illustration, the designer, uh, a short description and some thumbnail images are, are helpful. We expect that out. And then your files. And the one thing I forgot to mention earlier when I was talking about um, ideal file submission, to make it easier for the, the player, try to put everything in one PDF. You know, okay, if you got to have a separate PDF for your rules, that's probably okay. But a lot of people will put the rules in the same file as the printed components and it's good to go. Um, I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Another thing I, I always make sure to add, I think this is something maybe a best practice. If your game needs other components, make that very, very clear. Maybe in the first page. Like I know a lot of times you buy a game, you open up the rule book and it'll say components and it has that like little section in there to make sure you've got all the cubes and dice and stuff. But with this, make it way more obvious than that. It'll, it'll usually be like one of the first pages I'll have. And it's just a blank white page and it just says components necessary for play. And it gives like a bullet point list. And if there's... Uh, alternatives like you know you can use um if maybe maybe the file has a way to make custom dice right so if you've got custom faces for dice then you've got like the little layout and you've got the little boxes and people can turn that into stickers or whatever but if they don't have that give them a dice chart so if they want to use a d6 and they don't want to do stickers or all that well a one equals this a two equals that three equals this and it just makes it more manageable easier to get to the table and so i think it's another thing it's just if there's different ways that people can accomplish the same thing tell them those alternatives and save them the trouble because like yeah. we're saying all think this about, make it easy about, yeah think about their experience right like make their experience right. as um resistance free as possible get it to the table as fast as possible and um i think you did that with dungeon ball right like 
I, I feel like mm-hmm. I had that game and it, it did that same kind of thing because I've seen the print and play file. I have the physical game, but I think it did that kind of dice specking and that was helpful. A log sheet wouldn't hurt um, in case there's changes. Um, every once in a while, someone will email me and say, hey, how do I get uh, changes? And at the current build of Shopify that we have, we don't have like a, a way for you to log into the back end and upload files. So you just need to resubmit to that same form and I'll see it in our spreadsheet and I'll, I'll make sure it gets updated. But, um, you know, add a log sheet, a little text edit file that says what was changed so that um, our folks that um, they'll get an automatic update with the file emailed to them. They'll know what not to have to reprint. Right. So like only two cards got updated, the errata. So like, just let them know that. Yeah, that's a really good point. So what else? Anything as far as like cool ideas you've seen other people doing? We're just talking about QR codes. Anything along those lines where people are kind of pushing this print and play idea in a new direction or to a new limit? Um, There's been a little bit of 3D printing files, STLs included. And, you know, I love the idea that that's where we'll be someday is that everyone will have a 3D printer. It's it's the same thing, right? Like we all used to have old printers that printed in black and white and were really slow. When we get to this stage where we're at with 2D printers, that 3D printers can do it so fast and do it so great, like we're going to be able to print whole games at home. And people are trying to push that envelope, but we're not quite there yet. Um, you know, 3D printers are oftentimes complex, hard to use, maybe like still a little expensive or whatever. Um, but I think we're on the cusp of that flipping soon. Uh, the QR codes was one thing that I've seen. I think oh, there were some dynamic designs where you could log onto a website and um, sort of enter, almost like choose your own adventure. Um, it, it was another it was another dungeon quest type game, and uh, sadly I, I, I don't remember the name off the top of my head. Um, those are the ones that come to mind, Gabe. It's, uh, uh, definitely, ro- definitely room for innovation in that space. Um, you know, I've often thought, wouldn't it be cool if the game allowed for you to go to Discord, is a special game room, and have conversations with other players? So, like, take you know, Robomon for example. Let's say I'm playing Robomon and I'm in your world, and I go to a marketplace where I want to exchange something that I have. Could I have a Discord chat with other players, or with Gabe himself, or someone you hire to be in character talking to me? like at a certain part of the day, right? Like to make it manageable for, you know, us. Or a bot. You could just use a bot chat. Great idea. You yeah. you ask a certain phrase and it gives you different options. Yeah, no reason yeah. why you couldn't do that. Yeah, so I, I think there's lots of room for innovation in that. Um, and, and some people are, are starting to do that. We see um, Alexander Shen releasing a lot of cool stuff in small quantities, uh, quests over coffee. Uh, That's their Patreon, which is cool because people yeah. can just back it for a certain amount of month and they get, you know, certain amount of content in return with each release. Yeah. That's a cool way to do it. Yeah. Those are, those are the ones that come to mind, man. I'm just sitting here thinking again, I'm, I'm game designing as we're chatting, but like, okay, you go to, you've got your print and play and let's say it's a dungeon crawl, like uh, dungeon pages. Right. And it tells you, you know, you get to a certain point in the game and you scan a QR code. It takes you to the discord page, right? The discord sub chat or whatever. And then you've got a bot that says, Hey, uh, you know, it's a merchant. Right. And it says, Hey, what do you want to buy? And like, okay, I want the, I want the plus two broadsword. Cool. It pops up a link. You click the link. It takes you to a PDF file. You print that out. Now you've got the new card. You've got the new sword. It's got new stats or you, you get a new ally. You get a new map. Hey, where do you want to go next? Okay. I want to go to the mountains. Cool. Click a link. Boom. Here's the new mountain PDF, uh, you know, a file print that out. Now I'm in the mountains playing it immediately. Right. Right. And it's, and it's and behind, that- behind a riddle, right? Like, so like, yes, because, you know, they'll say, well, why didn't you just give me all the files up front? Well, like, well, now I'm making it more gamified, right? So like you, exactly. you solve this riddle and you've unlocked something and now you could share it with other people if you want. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, that's collector. You know, that's a lot of fun too. Yeah. And you could do, I mean, you could put certain files behind really hard riddles, right? Only, only 5% of people who play the game are ever going to find this thing, but that's okay. Right. And you don't really feel like you've, you've shortchanged anybody, you know, you've just kind of made it an interesting little Easter egg, little golden nugget that other people, um, that certain people can find. And that's cool, right? And you make that part of your game. You tell players going in, it's like, hey, some of this stuff's really hard and it's got cool rewards. You know, like it's got the best sword in the game or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, You can find the, like in Final Fantasy, you can find the hidden bosses. You know, you beat the game, but then you can go around the world and find these like much more challenging encounters. You could do stuff like that. Like there's so many cool 
things, again, with the dynamic QR codes, with a Discord, with a bot, like we're getting into some interesting territory and I'm hoping someone's listening to this and has all the ability and wherewithal to design the game we're talking about. I don't have the, I ain't got the time, <laughs> but I would love for someone else to take this idea, throw throw our names, throw me and Jason in, in the rule book as a credit or something like that. But I, I just want to see these games exist. Begin with so many cool things. Yeah. That would be fun. So, I want to play that. Yeah. Tell me about a little more about Cursed Menagerie. So Menagerie, Menagerie, how do you say it? I say it Menagerie. I've heard it the other way too. The Cursed Menagerie is, it's dice, it's cards, it's uh, mitigation. It's, you are playing the role of someone like from The Conjuring where you, you're not really an exorcist in my game. You're more of like trying to expel ghosts out of cursed objects. So the objects, they should be fine. They should be normal. It's just a doll. It's just a dollhouse. It's just a monkey with symbols, right? But no, it's been haunted by a ghost. And, you know, maybe you're you're like the lady from The Conjuring or your poltergeist uh, lady coming in trying to help Carol Ann and expel the ghost out of the object and then defeat it. And and to to do that, it's um it's dice puzzles, right? So like you roll a set of dice and you're trying to meet certain combinations and you use your hero's abilities to mitigate those dice. And when you capture the object, each object gives you a special ability that you can carry with you. So like I really was inspired by this museum of oddities that they had in the movie. And you're collecting these objects on your little investigation sheet, checking it off one by one. And when you're ready to use that ability, it's just a one time thing and boom, it's gone. Um, and then you move your way through the objects. So if you're playing normal mode, that's uh, six objects to win. But if you're playing the... Um, sort of the expert mode, there's 13 objects that are going to be released. Things like uh, a fortune teller, uh, you know, like in, in the movie Big, that that creepy fortune teller dude, to um, a puzzle box inspired by things like Hellraiser. All the different movie tropes have been have been touched on at least a little bit. I've got a cursed videotape like The Ring, and um, I just love that stuff. It's a little bit macabre, but we made sure that I picked an illustrator who sort of like straddled the the line of it's still fun. It's still lighthearted, but like you get a little bit of edgy, like, Ooh, spooky, you know, um, that, that was what I was aiming for with uh, the curse menagerie. Yeah. Very cool. And one thing I love that really kind of drew me into it to learn more is the campaign launches October 3rd. So if you're listening to this, it's on, uh, I'm going to release this episode on the day that the, um, the campaign goes live, but then you're delivering October 13th. You're delivering 10 days later on Friday, the 13th. And so again, just that control to be able to say, I can release this on a certain day at a certain time. It's up to me when I push the big, you know, send, send email button basically. And you can have that, that control. It's just, it's just so nice. And it, you know, it fits the theme here. And so I think it's really cool. Like I wanted people to be able to play this around Halloween and when I realized that this was one of the years that the 13th fell on a Friday, I was like, oh, I was saying to my wife, I was like, Beth, this is perfect. Like, this is this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm ending on Friday 13th. I am going to ship this game and I'm just going to have a blast with it. So, um, yeah, the game's just about done playtesting. So it's all tightening up really nicely and the art's all in. Um, I'm just finishing up the graphic design and uh, we're almost there. Yeah, very cool, man. All right, so anything else print and play wise, anything we haven't touched on, any interesting things you'd like to see, just anything in, in, at all as we close things out. Like we've talked about, integration of more technology could be a lot of fun. I think I'd love to see more one-page um, games come in, not just uh, roll and write, but just seeing what people can do with a single piece of paper and some components. Oh, oh, one thing I wanted to mention earlier. I saw a game, can't remember, save my life the name or anything, but you folded the page. So you would have to do different things and you would fold the page over and you would fold it this way and fold it this other way. And it was printed on both sides and the way you folded it and you would line it up with different lines, you would see new images or you'd get different numbers or like, it was just this really cool way to do it. And if, because it's a print and play, no one cares. Like, I just print another one. Like if it's people get funny about stuff they, they buy that comes out of a you know published box. They don't want to write on it. They don't want to cut it up, tear it up, fold it. They, it's got to maintain its pristine condition but it's just something different about a print and play because you can just make another one. And so I think that's another thing we can lean into is cutting and tearing and folding and balling up. And like, there's all sorts of different things you can, you can do in the physical world with a print and play that might kind of put people off. It will, if it was a traditionally published game. So something else to think about. Yeah, for sure. I think um, I've, I've pondered whether or not like a, a build your own mech, like battle tech kind of thing could be fun. And you know, looked around at some of the 3D paper 
creations that are out there. There's plenty of people who have created mechs in 3D paper and they look amazing. And I'm like, okay, how can I simplify that down to uh, our community um, who may not have the origami skill to like make this perfect thing. So it's more approachable and you can maybe build a little army of it. Um, I think that's really appealing. Like there is an aspect of, okay, where do I store it? So all my work doesn't go to waste. So you have to sort of like, you know, find the the right fit. But I, I would love to see that if somebody came in and did some kind of paper folding, whether it's uh, mechs or spaceships, I have a huge fondness for constructible ships and playing snap ships right now. And you know, in the past, I designed Starforge for that same reason. Like, I, I just love the idea of constructing something as part of the game. I think that toy likeness is fun. So, bringing more toy toy play into uh, into print and play games would be great. Yeah. So, another idea for you, for anyone listening, is so one of the things I, I use a lot in my prototyping is labels, eight and a half by eleven inch printable labels. If I need to make a board or or you know whatever, I can just print that off, cut it up, and then slap it on something. Or if I need to update it, well. If you have a file that you tell people, hey, you need to print this on an eight and a half by 11 label. Well, now when it prints out, you have a, a sticker sheet. And so for your mech game, well, you've got different wheels and legs and arms and uh, armor and heads and guns and swords. You've got all these things kind of lined out where you can cut them out easily. And now you've got a sticker and then you have another just regular sheet of paper. And now I am literally sticking the mech together based on number of points or abilities or whatever, or maybe I get an upgrade or maybe I want to change out the rocket launcher for a laser. And so I just take the laser and stick it over top of the rocket launcher. Now I've got a whole, you know, another ability or something like that, but I am creating my own mech or my own army or whatever, but it's just through stickers, right? And it stays flat and you don't have to worry about it getting messed up or broken. And you can, if you want to start over, well, just print out some more and start over. Uh, you could leave, you could do black and white and then you could color it yourself, right? So if you want to color in the camouflage or color a flag or something like that, you know, make the, the sword red or blue or green just because you wanted to do that. Or if you wanted to have an illustrated version that has all the colors there too, you could do it, you know, have two different versions. Lots of options, man, because stickers, stickers change everything. Like we can now update abilities, you know, and I don't know, just cool. The sky's the limit, I think is what we're getting at. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. Um I think people like to customize stuff as we've talked about and the ability to make that gamified is very appealing. Yeah, absolutely. Man, now I got to go design that game or somebody else. Somebody else design it. That just sounds cool. Stickered mech. I've been wanting, I've been working on a mech game lately. So maybe this is the, uh, this thing, but if, if somebody beats me to it, more power to you, send me an email and I'll publish it or Jason send him an email. He'll publish it. Like that's what we're doing anyway. So I'll do the so, print and play. Gabe will do the physical. We'll get you covered. Good to go. Jason, this has been excellent, man. Like we already said, Curse Menagerie, it's on Kickstarter right now. People go check that out. PNPArcade.com, right? That's the URL? That's right. Very cool. Anything else you want to shout out? No, I just want to uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, I love the show and uh, it's, it's been fun talking with you. Man, thank you so much for being here. And man, I wish you the best. You've got, you and Tagmire, I guess you just don't have enough going on. You're always adding more stuff to your table, <laughs> to your plate. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely our MO. It's like, uh, how busy are we? Let's add one more thing. That's right. That's right. What's the old phrase? It's like, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Cause like they're already figuring out how to get stuff done anyway. <laughs> yep. um, that's it, man. You guys are doing amazing work. Really excited for the future. And yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Kim.